The following message is a ministry of the Upper Room Project. If you like the monthly content that you hear, the most helpful thing you can do is tell a friend. You could also leave a rating and a review. And finally, this show is only possible because of supporters like you. Go to www.upperroomproject.com backslash rhythm and show your support. Thanks. This is the Rhythm of Faith with Eddie Paul. One of the great joys I got to experience in my life was being able to run over to the house next door and hang out with my grandpa. We called him Papa. Papa was an amazing man who accomplished so many things in his life and I never really appreciated all he achieved until I was much older. He had this knack for taking the daily struggles of a teenage boy whose worldview was small and self-centered and not only making him laugh, but he would manage to sneak in some little nuggets of wisdom. I remember coming home from college to visit he and Gran, that was my grandmother, and we began talking. Well, I began complaining. You see, I was on the men's basketball team in college, and I began complaining because I wasn't really getting any playing time. I was always the first one in the gym and the last to leave. I hit the weights like crazy, but Papa probably couldn't tell because he'd always crack a joke about me being able to hula hoop a cheerio. I had just gotten to the juicy part of my complaint, and Papa put his hand on my shoulder and said, You know, when I was recruited to play basketball in the Big Ten, I wasn't even allowed to play because I was black. At that moment, you could hear a pin drop from three states away. When you were recruited to play in the Big Ten, Papa? Yes, sir, he said to me. We must have talked for three hours that day. I learned of all the adversity he had faced as one of the first African Americans allowed to practice medicine in the state of Indiana. I learned of men he served with in the military who would constantly degrade him, even while patching up their wounds. I learned a lot about my family history and our country's history when I sat with Papa, especially the stuff you didn't learn about in the textbooks. Most of all, I gained perspective. I learned that no matter what obstacles we face, we always have a choice. To plant ourselves firmly in our values and beliefs like a redwood tree, or to allow ourselves to let circumstances dictate our outcomes. Today I want to introduce you to a person whose perspective reminds me of my papa. The story of bread is one of heartbreak and pain. Or is it? You're listening to The Rhythm of Faith. My name is Brett. I live in uh, South Central Missouri, Rolla to be specific. I am uh, a um, 
a foster child, an adopted child, um, dealt with pretty serious medical conditions at birth. Um, I was born two and a half months early, weighed two and a half pounds. Um, in the mid 70s, uh, at a time when dealing with those types of things weren't normal um, by medical standards, um, I had to be rushed from a local county hospital to Iowa City Hospital and uh, have immediate open heart surgery to repair a hole in my heart and a valve that didn't work and dealt with a handful of seizures and lung issues and visual issues and basically spent the first nine months of my life in the NICU. Um, during that time from when I was born to transferred to Iowa City, um, my biological parents stepped out um, and, and left. And I, I don't know the conditions or the reasons why that happened, but it was at that point I became a ward of the state. Um, and that's part of the reason why I ended up living in a, a NICU unit for so long. Um, I was named and cared for by night nurses um, who looked after me and were very protective over the social workers that would come in and they hung on to me as long as they could um, until county social workers finally said why is this child in the NICU and at the time I was much bigger than all the other newborns and they couldn't keep me there much longer so I got pulled into the system at that point um, so uh, health-wise, you know, I was dealing with a lot of medical issues, delays. I was on phenobarbital and couldn't eat um, like a regular kid. I had just very uh, delayed suck swallow. So it took me, um, my, my mom now, she'll tell stories about having to pass me around a room um, in order to feed me just a few ounces of formula because it, it just took an inordinate amount of time for me to down that. So wow. it was just kind of a, uh, an, an act of, of patience and intentionality on, on all my family and, and their friends to, to care for me. And I was one of the first kids in the Midwest to get early intervention in a, in a home setting by a therapist, speech therapists and medical professionals. Um, and so that, that, that kind of existence, my start into the world just kind of impacted from day one about how I related to others and, and um, what I deem normal. Um, you know, I, I can remember just physically in kindergarten, just dealing with um, issues like lack of coordination and and just proprioception, like dealing with the world around me. And uh, one of my still friends, still good friends, who was my oldest friend, actually I remember at the playground had to teach me how to run right because my body didn't have that coordination piece. Like, I mean, it was kind of a funny thing at that time. He says, Fred, put your arms down. You're running like a goonie bird. <laughs> and so he had to like literally just stop me and just say, you know, Kind of just said you know i'm, I'm gonna help you with this so hmm. um but a, a product of that um just just kind of growing up with that 
um, just kind of in, impact, I think, how I view others as well. I mean, um, and as far as growing up, you're just in, in a foster home, adoptive home, that, that kind of lent itself an interesting view of what normal was as well. Um, I had brothers and sisters from all different places around the globe. Um, so just that, that sense of, of what a family was comprised of, what family looked like was a very unique thing for me, but I just grew up with that being normal. Um, my, uh, my older, my older brother Troy was an orphan of the Vietnam War. His dad was a black GI. His mom was, as we're told, was part of the Mountain Yard tribe. Um, and his village was wiped out. He ended up in an orphanage, was flown over uh, stateside by medical chopper. And so I grew up just being very comfortable with having a brother who did not look like me. And it just seemed like, that. okay, this is my family. That's normal. Um, and we had other foster kids in and out of our home, um, boys, girls, different races, different ages, um, some with developmental disabilities. Um, and, and having a, a foster home then who adopted me becoming my adoptive home that just kind of had that, that thread of diversity and difference as normal in their home just had a big impact on how I then in turn viewed the world and, and, and saw others, even from a little age. Brett's adoptive parents believed in sharing as much love with others as they possibly could. His father was a minister and his mother an early childhood educator. Their passion for sharing love with others was so impactful that just a few years ago, Brett's parents adopted an adult. This young lady didn't have a family system. And so my sister would bring her in to like, you know, go to my mom and dad's for a holiday because she didn't have anywhere else to go. And after a while, when that became routine, I remember it was actually my mom who asked her, would you like to be part of our family? Um, and so, yeah, so three years ago, I now I'm not the youngest of four anymore, but I now have, uh, I'm a party of five and I have a younger sister, but that just speaks in the notion of you asked, you know, who my parents are and, and what led them to this. It's just, you know, that that's just who they are. My dad was, and mom was always very open and opening their doors and their home to, to people in need, whether it was friends of ours or people without families or support systems or places to go. Um, it's just like, there's never a question. And, and I just think that's just intrinsically who they are and, and how they view humanity in the world. And, and the beautiful thing about it is uh, we were all raised with that appreciation for, for others. Um, I remember when we were actually asked, would we mind having an, another sibling in the family? And not one of us had any reservations or, or issues with it about like, oh, would it unseat some kind of um, family hierarchy or system or place? And it's just like, none of our minds work that way. And, and I think it's genuinely because we've had an example since day one about 
how you view other people in this world and how you care for them and so wh whether that that draw for my mom and dad came from a personal place that led them to their professions it, it's just been a transcendent thread in who they are so how, how do you think that's impacted your view on love um well i, I think love specifically is in that it, it, it's organic um it, it's just you know it, it's one of those things that you know when you look at other people and what other people need it's just the core value. Now, I will admit that that's a bit of a hard subject for me and that just dealing with some of my own stuff. I didn't get married till I was 33. Um, and there was a large part of my life where I didn't think I would necessarily get married. Um, and, and I'll point, honestly, some of that back to just just a fear of attachment and a, a resistance to attachment. and. Yeah. some reactive attachment disorder stuff built in there but you know I, even outside of that you know my own journey and struggle with that getting to a place to be open and accepting and seeking of that um just the, the broad sense of love and how you treat other people um that's just commonplace it's just what you do there aren't you know there, there aren't real preconceived notions or rules for who it applies to and who it doesn't it's just to me it, it's just i was raised to see everyone as deserving and needing of that and so that is what we do for one another um it, it it's been it's been present the whole time um i will say that it's just and and i honestly attribute that to the fact of growing up in a household with a dad as a pastor and um, I, I think an awareness piece on that you know had to do with the fact that my mom would tell me my story of what happened to me as a little child I was growing up so it's like she kind of empowered me with here's how you came into the world here are the things you dealt with and it, it's amazing that you're here um, and so I think I always had a notion of faith and, and presence of God has to be a reality because if it were not, what else explains the circumstances that I'm not dead? I mean, the fact that I've had to be resuscitated multiple times as an infant and, you know, had a 80% chance of dying as an infant yet didn't. And ended up in a family system that was loving and caring. And so, I mean, there's just a multitude of reasons. You know, people always talk about, well, pr prove to me how there is a God or, or why faith is important. And, and I was the example of, well, tell me how it's not. Um, it, it was just, it was just a solid fact in, in, in my life. And there were no, no other reasons for it. Um, so I think the way I attacked faith as a child was really just kind of involvement in, in, in the youth-based activities. Um, I mean, I grew up, we went to family camp uh, when I was little in, in Michigan. Our, our church had a, a, a camp up there that we attended and it was families would go and spend a week and a half, two weeks, you know, playing together, eating together, singing together, kind of 
focusing on being in, in the presence together. Um, and so those childhood family camp parlayed themselves into youth group and, and work trips with youth groups and just service projects with youth groups, um, turned themselves into a synod school um, where we'd go on like an, an intergenerational family camp at a college campus and you'd engage with people, eat with people, activities, worship, um, growth, and, and that parlayed itself into me working at a summer camp in, in high school and um, spending summers just being a camp counselor, teaching um, Bible study, working with youth, and you know, then you know, that summer camp experience then parlayed itself into like, well, what do I want to do with my life? I enjoy working with youth, I enjoy working with people. So that then informed my decision to like, well, I've been studying sociology and human services and so my first job was uh, working in a group home um, you know I, I followed that up um, by doing case management in Chicago working with zero to three populations dealing with disabilities which is what I was when I was born so I mean, that kind of came full circle. And then I worked with adults with developmental disabilities doing case plans. And, um, then I worked on the other side with of, of providers helping get services for kids with disabilities. And then I decided I want to go back to school. I'm not, there was more of an engagement piece I was missing. So I pursued my master's in education and thought I wanted to teach for a while. And, and I did for a minute and went back and did my student teaching on the south side of Chicago in CPS. And that was eye-opening and, and just a, a wonderful experience all around. And, you know, that that going back to school and, and touching education that way was really interesting for me because it, it was one of those things where I genuinely questioned. I looked back at my school experience and it's just like, okay, I never felt like I had really a, a core subject or course of study that was my forte, if you um, And at the time, I worked in an alternative school where kids who had been sent to juvie, juvie, kicked out of school, sent to juvie, were needing to work their way back into their school districts. Hmm. And so I was ultimately dealing with a one-room schoolhouse, myself and two staff, and kids being bussed in where we had to provide searches on kids to make sure there were no drugs and weapons coming in the building. Um, and again, you look at the tie back to what I experienced when I moved to Indianapolis and dealt with a little bit of chaos at 108. Well, here I am back in a situation dealing with kids, dealing with those same struggles and issues, but now I'm on the other side of it, trying to impart education. And so that was another interesting dynamic with that and the student teaching pieces, are we really aware of what kids are coming into school with as far as just their stresses, their traumas? And we're wondering why education isn't sticking and why kids aren't progressing as we think they should. And it's like, well, you have kids with very disrupted home lives and community lives and are 
dealing with things that kids that age should have no business dealing with. You know, that the realities are just heartbreaking and staggering. And, you know, it's just, it came to my mind that, you know, in this experience is that like, okay, what is the goal of education? Is it really to impart just rote knowledge that someone can spit back out to you? Or is it really getting people to look at their circumstances, find out what they're passionate about, and help them how to critically assess and think and engage the world around them. And I think that ultimately became like a eureka moment for me as far as, okay, this is what teaching really is about. And then shortly after that, I haven't taught anymore because (laughs) I, I kind of got stuck in a place where it's just like, is there a situation I can get into where I can teach and you can focus on that student-centered work of, of getting students to chew, chew on information and, and understand it and process it. Um, and, and it's unfortunately, no, it's teach for the test. So I got a little bit jaded and jumped back into social service. Um, so, so after that teaching stint in Georgia, I went back and worked with adults with developmental disabilities in a workshop in Savannah, Georgia, and did case management um, to kind of just ensure safety and inclusion in society for folks. Um, and I love that. And uh, I didn't mention this before, you, you are aware, my, I married a pastor. That's also apropos, right? Um, <laughs> hence the me moving to Chicago to Georgia, marrying my wife, who's a minister, then us um, we had to, we moved from Georgia up to northern Minnesota. She took a call in church 90 miles south of the Canadian border. Um, and that was a little bit of a, you talk about a transitional stress, just going from um, coastal warm living, going up to the Arctic <laughs> and uh, trying to... <laughs> Trying to make that be uh, normal and, and, and good, that was a little bit of a struggle. Um, but ultimately, I, I, I taught a little bit when we first got there in, a, in an autism classroom, um, and then that was fairly intense. But shortly after that, I was asked to join um, in the county social services department, and I worked with children with mental health issues. I would case manage and safety plan for them, kids all the way from grade school through high school. Um, and, and I did that for four years, a little over four years actually. And, uh, and I'll tell you again, you talk about just an, a neat opportunity to engage just yet another population of folks. A lot of my work um, with the county put me on a closed Indian reservation. Um, I did a lot of work with the Red Lake Band of Ojibwe. Um, so doing, kind of walking between the county and the and then tribal government and just juggling that and working with people. You know, it's like two sets of rules almost. And so mm-hmm. you, you talk about, you know, cultural competence and, and understanding. Well, I mean, I was just, thrown in a pool and saying swim here <laughs> because you know I, I really had no other experience dealing with indigenous populations before then 
um, in, in this country at least. So, so it, um, to me, work-wise, even though the uh, climate was brutal and cold and I honestly hated it, um, I, I got the gift of being able to be exposed to a culture that was new to me and learn a whole other set of norms and mores and make some wonderful relationships. Um, but again, it's again you talk about the full circle piece. It's like, well, it's kind of part and parcel of what my life has been like. You know, just doors open. Who knows who's going to be coming in and staying a while. Have you gone through those times where you felt, man, my faith is tested after seeing this? Um, I, I, I think there's, I think that's been a undercurrent for me, surely, throughout the whole process. I mean, there are some things that when you talk about just a sense of justice, if you will, um, that, that don't track <laughs> you know you, you just see you see the plight some people go through and it's just like you're you're right it's like what is organically done to deserve this crisis this chaos um and it's not and and and, and i think ultimately for me it's like i don't think how any of that i don't think that's how that works i think um there's always been a notion for me of just, there's an ability to persevere. And, and I think for me, it's kind of easy though. I, I think I get, I think I get a, a pass in some respects, just because, I mean, I, I've dealt with struggle, surely. Um, I've had some life-changing health issues throughout my life and yet I, I'm still here. Um, but, but I think for me and, and just kind of viewing that for, for, from my own experience and my own lens, um, th there's an inherent hope that's woven in. It's like no, no matter the, the amount of stress or, or chaos or circumstance that, that brings up, there's gonna be, there's, there's something around the corner. There's, there's a tomorrow. There's, there's the capacity for things to get better. We want to thank Brett for sharing his faith journey with us today, and we hope his story inspired a little more hope in your heart, a hope that lets you understand that the greatest obstacles you'll ever face lay in your head. We also want to thank Mind's Eye, Audio Binger, Blue Dot Sessions, Captive Portal, Chad Crouch, Dr. Turtle, Drake Stafford, Jay Blank, Little Glass Men, and Ryan Anderson for providing today's tracks. If you're interested in becoming a foster parent, you can learn more by going to adoptuskids.org or by calling 1-888-200-4005. Until next time, one love.